Welcome to Saints. In this podcast, we'll be discovering and discussing fascinating insights to topics and events found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. This new four-volume narrative is a history of the Restoration. You can also read it and all the material we'll be discussing today on LDS.org or on your Gospel Library app. And now, Saints. I'm Ben Godfrey, and today I'm joined with one of our story editors, Scott Hales. Hello. And Sarah Eyring. Hi. Thank you both for being with us today. Our discussion today is going to center around Chapter 3, Plates of Gold in, uh, in Saints. Scott, can you set the stage for us? Um, what's, what's happening in Chapter 3? Okay, so what we see in, in Chapter 3 is it picks up uh, right after Chapter 2, which is the first vision. So Joseph uh, has just had this amazing experience, but he doesn't quite know what to do with it. Uh, if you if you'll forgive a, a pop culture illusion here, it's kind of like he's kind of like Rey uh, in the Last Jedi, Star Wars: The Last Jedi, where she she is trying to figure out where she wh- what her place is in this big story, uh, and she keeps asking, you know, she asks Luke Skywalker, "I need to find my place in this story. I need somebody to help me." And that's kind of where Joseph is. Is he <laughs> he he knows that he's he's part of God's plan that that God has a role for him in this uh, in, in his plan, but he doesn't know what it is, and it's three years. Uh, three years pass, and he still doesn't know what that part is that he needs to play. Uh, and during that time, I mean, he's a he's a teenager. He 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 hangs out with with uh, you know fellow laborers. He doesn't really go to school that much. Uh, he makes some foolish choices. Uh, he's a goofball. It seems. I mean, he it uh, sounds like a normal teenage boy. Yeah, he's a normal teenage boy. He says later that you know he was guilty of levity, light mindedness. Uh, so. So he, he's, he's maybe not feeling, you know, maybe he, he, he's feeling like he hasn't lived up to God's expectations for him. Uh, and so he, he says another prayer and that kind of uh, takes him into a new direction. Uh, and so what we see here is, is the beginning of Joseph's apprenticeship. And the, the key figure in that apprenticeship is the angel Moroni. And so we learn in this chapter uh, primarily about the angel and what the angel tells him. That is so interesting. What does the angel tell him that he should do? Well, basically that God does have work for him to do and that he, uh, he tells him specifically about the gold plates. Uh, he tells him that there are plates hidden in a hill near your home and uh, you have been called of God to obtain these plates and uh, translate them. And then he, he kind of explained what they were, that they were a record of an ancient people. And, and so he, he basically gives Joseph direction. He, he lets him know what his place is in this. Uh, story. Let's listen to a little uh, a little piece of the story here um, about uh, the angel Moroni's visit. As Joseph prayed, a light appeared beside his bed and grew brighter until it filled the entire loft. Joseph looked up and saw an angel standing in the air. The angel wore a seamless white robe that came down to his wrists and ankles. Light radiated from him, and his face shone like lightning. At first, Joseph was afraid, but peace soon filled him. The angel called him by name and introduced himself as Moroni. He said God had forgiven Joseph of his sins and now had work for him to do. He declared that Joseph's name would be spoken of for good and evil among all people. So it's three years later. Joseph has this amazing vision of, of Moroni. Um, what happens next? Well, that's, that's an interesting question because 
Moroni uh, visits him three times in the night, so he's very tired in the morning, but he has the specific instructions to go tell his father what happened. One of the interesting things that we see in this chapter is that there's this kind of recognition on God's part and on Moroni's part is that Joseph is not quite ready to be the man he needs to be, that the Lord needs him to be. And so he, uh, Joseph is oftentimes uh, referred to others to help him out. So the first person he's referred to is his father. He, 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 Moroni tells him to go tell his father what happened and that his father will help him and support him. I remember in the book that it, we have this little passage that Joseph's kind of a little bit afraid to tell his dad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, we, we don't know a whole lot about this. We don't know why or whatever, but, but uh, we get a sense that he's, he's nervous to talk to his father about it. He's worried that his father might not believe him. If you think about what happened after the first vision, uh, he, uh, we don't have, have any mention of him telling his parents about the vision, but we do have accounts of him uh, telling his, his minister and the minister completely rejected the idea and others in the community completely rejected the idea. So, so that may factor into Joseph's reluctance to talk about what happened. He, he may worry that his father might not believe him as well. What's interesting though, is that his father uh, has very similar views as Joseph. I mean, he believes in things like visions and angels. Uh, and so there's, you know, it, it is kind of curious that Joseph is worried that his father might not believe him. But again, keep in mind that he's 17. I mean, I remember, uh, you know, when I was 17, uh, I remember talking to my dad sometimes. And I, I remember my dad like looking at me with this perplexed look, you know, saying things like, <laughs> you know, I hear the words coming out of your mouth, but I understand none of them. <laughs> right. Well, uh, I mean, so I, I think, I mean, there could be, there could be some of that too. There could be some father, son, you know, disconnects there. I, there's an interesting segue I, I think I want to make. And that is just that before maybe this prayer had happened, he also had had sort of an unusual experience and that was with a seer stone, I think. Was that before the prayer that he, after which he conversed with Moroni? Yes. Yeah. And, so, and, and in that case, he, it was not a stone that was sent from heaven particularly, but something that apparently he found yeah, yeah. on his own. Yeah. He actually found it. I mean, it's, it's kind of like he, he found it in a well. I mean, he found it in the ground. Uh, so yeah. So, so before the angel uh, Moroni uh, visited Joseph, he, he and his brother Alvin were hired to, to dig a well. And, and during that, that time, they uncovered a stone. Let's listen to just a, a clip here actually from the book that, that talks about this stone. And then let's dive in a little bit deeper. Like many people in the area, including his father, Joseph believed that God could reveal knowledge through objects like rods and stones, as he had done with Moses, Aaron, and others in the Bible. One day, while Joseph was helping a neighbor dig a well, he came across a small stone buried deep in the earth. Aware that people sometimes used special stones to search for lost objects or hidden treasure, Joseph wondered if he had found such a stone. Looking into it, he saw things invisible to the natural eye. So Joseph finds this, this stone. Um, and as the chapter mentions, he, he believes that God can speak through these things. Um, what was this like for Joseph? What, what did he use the stone for? Well, it, again, this is not something we know a whole lot about, but, but the sense is, is that Joseph finds the stone and he is aware of this uh, tradition in his culture uh, of seer stones. Uh, you know, think about, I mean, this is the early, the early 1800s. This is before things like, 
you know, we had things like smartphones or other things that kind of help us learn things or, or, or you know, learn things instantaneously or, or helps us find things or whatever it might be. Uh, and so, you know, there, 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 is a, there was kind of a seerstone culture, a uh, folk culture that he grew up in, where if you were missing something, let's say you lost an axe or a hammer, or if you, if you, you know, wanted to know something, if you had the power of a seer, you could kind of consult your own stone and, and, and find whatever it is you're looking for. Or you could go to someone that you knew who had this power, this ability, and uh, get them to help you find whatever it is you're looking for. And so, and so Joseph found this rock and he said, I wonder if. And so he looked uh, um, at the stone and uh, he was able to, to see things. And people began to see him as a seer and to, to go to him for help whenever they needed something. So Joseph has, has found this stone and um, it's between this time from the first vision to the, the, when the angel Moroni is going to appear to him. How does this impact his life and this learning of this gift of seership? Uh, what's this like for Joseph? It changes things for him. I mean, he, he's now recognized as someone who has uh, an ability and his family recognizes this as 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 divine. I mean, like I said, he grew up in a culture. That, um, it's kind of an interesting time if we're talking about seer stones. Uh, not everybody would have, in Joseph Smith's times, not everybody would have believed in the power of a seer or the ability uh, of a seer. Uh, you know, keep in mind that this is, this is um, the 1800s, the enlightenment had just happened in Europe and in, and in America. Uh, people were beginning to, many people were beginning to rely more on reason than faith. Uh, and so communities were oftentimes split for those who had kind of a see it to, you know, I, I've got to see it to believe it mentality and others who, who like Joseph's family relied deeply on, on faith and this belief in God's power to work through objects like seer stones or like uh, rods or whatever it might be. Some people saw, saw it as a stu- superstitious belief, but other people, as, as we find out later in the book and in, in later chapters, they, they actually um, hired Joseph because of his, ability, uh, his abilities as a seer. So we learn in later chapters that uh, in chapter four, for example, uh, he's hired to help on a uh, treasure hunt uh, down in Pennsylvania, which is a very important job for Joseph because it's during that job that he meets his wife. But yeah, he becomes recognized for it and, and uh, generally accepted as a seer in his community. There is a, a topic associated with this chapter about seer stones and treasure seeking, as well as the gold plates and Joseph's family. And I just uh, remind our listeners that if you're curious and want to know more about those uh, particular topics, you can always go to saints.lds.org click on the topics link, and you can dive in deeper to learn about those and, uh, and to read the sources on these things we're discussing. Today. Yeah, and I, I think, I think that's, it's good to point that out because I think a lot of people today have questions about seer stones because as, as a church, we haven't really used that term uh, until recently, until the, the image of Joseph's brown seer stone, the one he apparently found in the well, were printed in the ensign and, and the church website, and, and they, you know, they came through the Joseph Smith papers and whatnot. And people have questions about that because they've never heard about it. They've never heard about its role in, in Joseph's uh, apprenticeship as a prophet. They, they haven't heard about its role in the translation of the Book of Mormon, so they're uncomfortable about it. Did you learn, Sarah, did, did somebody post on your Facebook wall a picture of the seer stone when it came out in the inside? I I have seen that, yes. <laughs> I think I think, honestly, like what you're pointing out is so true. Even though we've known about the, the idea or the phrase seer stone, until that picture came out, it was just kind of off. It, it the didn't radar. quite seem real, and now yeah. we, we've got something that that makes it 
far more real. And I think, I think it's, I mean, it's interesting that as a church, we've always kind of had a belief in seer stones, but we haven't always used that, that term. I mean, when we talk about the Urim and Thummim, we're talking about seer stones that were prepared by the Lord for Joseph and included with the gold plates in the, in, in the box. But we just haven't used that term, so we're uncomfortable with it, but we are beginning to use it. And I think just as, as we kind of begin to, I mean, and this is one of the things that we do in Saints is we try to erase the distance between the Urim and Thummim and the seer stone that he found in the well. These were both objects that he used uh, that, that helped him, you know, translate, that helped him receive information, receive knowledge from God. Both did the job. Both are essentially the, the same type of device. At the time, um, in the historical records that we have about the Book of Mormon translation, what were the words that they used to describe these objects that Joseph used? Yeah, so what we see in, in early accounts, uh, Joseph oftentimes referred to them as, as uh, interpreters. And I, think, I think the term he generally used was interpreters. Um, and uh, it wasn't really until the early 1830s that he began to use the word Urim and Thummim as well. You know, that's a term that comes from the Bible. I think it's a term that, you know, we've become comfortable with because Joseph soon became comfortable with it. And that's how he uh, and other, the other early saints, you know, it's a term they felt comfortable with. So it's just one that we've used. And, and it's only been recently that we've started kind of bringing back this idea of the seer stone. So Joseph has these objects. It's now we're going back to the time he's 17 years old. Moroni has appeared to him. And Moroni's given him some instructions to tell his dad. Joseph's done that. Now what? Yeah, so Joseph finally tells his father. It's, it's kind of a funny story where, where Joseph is out in the fields. He's been up all night. He's trying to work. He's trying to keep up with his brother Alvin. Uh, it's not working. So his father's like, Joseph, go home. So Joseph goes home. He's trying to climb a fence and he falls over the fence. And after, you know, once he, you know, he hits the ground and he's kind of looking up dazed and he sees Moroni. Uh, and Moroni basically repeats his message and says, why haven't you told your father about this? Uh, and Joseph, you know, gives an excuse and, and Moroni tells him to go and do it. So Joseph does it and that sends him off immediately to, to the hill to search for the plates. So Moroni tells him, I've got more. There's a record. And what does Joseph do? And Joseph, uh, he basically gets up and he goes to the hill and he... Uh, is, it's, it's kind of interesting because on the one hand, he knows that, that the record is sacred that he's, he's off to find. He knows that he needs to be worthy and he needs to have the right mindset and the right motive, motivations for finding these plates. But at the, in the back of his mind, he's thinking, I come from a really poor family. Uh, we have been working to, you know, ourselves to the bone every single day of our lives. Uh, these plates are gold. They're going to be valuable. I could use this to help my family. Uh, and so he takes that you know, he, he's kind of conflicted and he takes that conflict to the hill with him. And so he is able, he has a vision of, of where to find the plates and he, he finds them uh, in, in the hill. And this is the story we all know. He, he goes there and he, he pries up the rock and he finds them there and he's immediately dazzled by what he sees. <laughs> and so he, he, he kind of reaches for them and he gets shocked and he tries to reach for them again and again he's shocked. And, and you know, you would think after the, the first or second time he would stop, <laughs> but I think he goes for a third time. Is that right? And finally, yeah, it is three times. And, and finally, he's like, why can't I obtain this book? What I think is neat here is we begin to see Moroni take on the role as Joseph's mentor, as his tutor in this process of finding his place in God's plan. Moroni basically says, look, you didn't follow instructions. You need to follow instructions if you, wanna, if you want to receive this record. And then one of the things that we have in Saints that's not in Joseph Smith history, that's not in the Pearl of Great Price, is this great teaching moment that um, Moroni shares with him. 
Moroni basically shows him a, a vision of the good and evil in the world. And he says, all this is shown, the good and the evil, the holy and impure, the glory of God and the power of darkness, that you may know hereafter two powers and never be influenced or overcome by the wicked one. So he's basically giving Joseph this vision of what he's up against. And then he says, you're only going to be able to withstand these powers and you're only going to be able to receive these sacred things if you pray and you are faithful in obeying the Lord. And I think if you look at that, that is the lesson that Joseph Smith takes with him for the rest of his life. He has to be close to the Lord at all times if he's going to get this work done. He's what, got to be faithful and he's got to be obedient. What is the source of that? Um, it's, it's not in the Joseph Smith history in the Pearl Great Price. Where, where do we learn about it? It's a, a letter that Oliver Cowdery wrote or, or published in the Messenger and Advocate, which was a, a newspaper uh, published in, in Kirtland. And so we assume that it, it was just um, something that Joseph shared with Oliver and Oliver then likely with permission shared that with the saints in the messenger and advocate. Very cool. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very neat source. And there's actually, we weren't able to include everything that's in that account just for the sake of space. But it, I mean, it's, we've, we've got the source in the notes. And if you're interested in learning more about Moroni's instructions to Joseph, uh, you can look up the source because it's, it's pretty fantastic stuff. That is interesting. And I didn't know before that he had felt conflicted about, you know, using the plates as God intended them or maybe using them to help his family financially. I had no idea about that sort of conflict. So I love that this narrative includes information that we otherwise might not know about. And it makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you think about it, even Joseph is just then coming out, you know, coming, coming from the fields. Farm labor is not easy. Uh, I've never used a scythe, but I imagine it's pretty terrible. Uh, to do. I mean, this is, before, this is all manual labor. You know, any chance that they could get to find a way out of poverty, I'm sure Joseph would have wanted to take it. And, and so I think his intentions were pure, but they weren't the right intentions. They weren't the right. thing that he needed to have in order to be worthy to receive the plates. It's a difficult lesson for him. I believe later in this chapter, we learn that the Lord tells him that he needs a person to come with him, mm -hmm. the right person. Yeah, and we actually see that at the end of the first visit, uh, he, he basically says, you need, uh, you know, you need to come back here in a year and you also need to bring someone with you. That person is Alvin, his oldest brother. And we assume we don't know quite why uh, Moroni asked him to do this, but we get the sense that Joseph, as young as he was, he needed somebody, he needed a role model or somebody who could help him with the maturing process. And Alvin was, was seven years older. He was Joseph's hero in many ways. Yeah. He, he was... You know, just based on family accounts, he was just a fine, upstanding guy, and, and Joseph loved him dearly, and he seems like the perfect person to help. He's almost, it feels like to me, almost like a second father figure. Yeah. Like Joseph yeah. just, he's got this wonderful family, he's so kind, he's, hel he's helping his parents out in ways that a lot of people would have said, you know, I'm on my own, I, I, I can't help you, I'm going to do my own thing, and Joseph just loves him so much, it makes sense to me in a way that the Lord would say, bring him. Mm -hmm. He's going to help out, but then Alvin dies. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's uh, probably the you know the first tragedy that Joseph experiences in his life. He is he is crushed by this and understandably confused. I mean the 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 angel of the Lord had just told him to take Alvin with him to the to the hill. You know the next the next year. Why, if God asked him to do this, if why if the angel asked him to do this, why then would God take him away? What's the answer? I don't know. What's the answer? <laughs> we don't well, you're know. You're leaving us on a cliffhanger. We don't here. know, and that's uh, that's kind of one of the the big the big questions. I mean, the the we know about um, 
the Moroni's request to, to bring Alvin to the hill from Joseph Knight, who was a friend of Joseph, uh, very close uh, on the scene here uh, to the story. He, he knew Joseph well. Uh, he is one of his longest and staunchest supporters throughout his entire life. So, so we, we know that from Joseph Knight, who's very reliable, but we don't know why the Lord would do this. And sometimes we just don't know why the Lord allows certain things to happen in our lives. Um, it doesn't make sense, but, but also I, I think it was part of Joseph's maturing process that maybe he needed some tragedy in his life. But I don't know. I, I think that's so, problematic as well. Sarah, you ever had an experience like maybe all the rest of us where you got an answer and then it didn't quite turn out? Well, yes, I, and I hate to admit it, but you remind me that, of course, I'm not the only one that has had this experience. And, and reading Joseph's story uh, gives me comfort in knowing that Heavenly Father sometimes operates in ways that are not totally clear to us. And so, yeah, that I had that question immediately when I read this chapter. That seems really conflicting. Why would he tell Joseph how something was going to happen and then, uh, while knowing that, of course, Alvin was going to pass away? Um, but I think that it's sweet that Joseph doesn't lose faith then and, you know, obviously continues in his journey of serving the Lord and retrieving the plates. How does that work then? Does he take somebody with him when he does retrieve the plates? Well, he does, and, and uh, that's you know we see that in a later a later chapter, and I don't know if I want to spoil that for listeners yet. But what I think is interesting, one one thing that that's kind of struck me as we've been talking here is that throughout his life, um, you know, we don't I, again. I don't know why Alvin died. I don't know why the Lord let that happen when Alvin seemed to have an important role in this work. I, I think one of the re, one what we see here is that the Lord is showing Joseph that he needs people. He needs others to help him out. And that's something that we see throughout Joseph Smith's life is he's never a lone wolf. He's always seeking others to help him in this work. He's always looking for the help of others. He, he knows his limitations. And so he, he searches for people who have strengths where he has weaknesses. And I think that's what the Lord is perhaps teaching him here is that, that Joseph, you can't do this alone. You need somebody like Alvin who's more mature than you, or you need someone like your father. And I think that, again, the Lord is teaching Joseph that he, he needs people. Scott, one of the things I've heard people talk about, we're so curious as people. We want to know everything we can. And the question comes up, were they gold or were they golden? <laughs> and as, as yeah. silly as that sounds, <laughs> what is the whole debate and what do we actually know from the historical record? So this is one of the things that, occasionally comes up. I mean, the Book of Mormon refers to the, the gold plates as, as the plates. Uh, Joseph talks about and others who, who were witnesses to the plates talk about their appearance of gold. So there's a sense that, that they are gold in some way. Many people oftentimes will point to the story, which we tell in a later chapter, where Joseph, you know, once Joseph receives the plates, there's this kind of there's this uh, moment where he has to run through the woods with the plates and right. people are like, how in the world? If these are pure gold, if these are actual gold plates, how in the world could he run right. that fast Too and fight off three bad guys? You know, and, and, and I think, I mean, it's a, it's a valid question, but we don't really know the, 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 the properties of the plates themselves. We know that they were gold or golden. Right. Uh, his brother, uh, William, his, his younger brother, William, who was not a witness of the plates, but he, he did hold them at times. And he did, I mean, he, he was one of those who kind of was able to feel the plates through a cloth and, you know, he could kind of get a sense of, of them. He believed that the plates were kind of a mixture of gold and copper. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's one of those things that we don't know. Uh, we don't know what the plates are made of, but we do know that the content of the plates, you know, the spiritual content, that's really what's important to us, right? I mean, yeah. people can debate about the, sure. 
the, <laughs> the metallic properties of the gold plates, but I think it's personally more important to study the Book of Mormon. Yeah, I find the, the debate a bit curious, but I wanted our listeners to, to get an idea of that. Maybe if they had just called them gold-ish, we would have been, you know, <laughs> so I'd love it. be okay. <laughs> so I saw a topic on saints, and it seems like there might be some sort of controversy around Nephi versus Moroni having appeared to Joseph. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So this is, I mean, this is something that you'll occasionally come across. And it's, uh, what the issue is, is that, um, you know, in the earliest documents that we have, the earliest histories that we have that Joseph Smith wrote about the appearance of Moroni. He doesn't refer to Moroni by name. He calls him either the angel or the angel of the Lord or the messenger, uh, or the messenger of the Lord, that sort of thing. And so we don't actually get Moroni named until the 1830s, or at least the documentary account that we have. We don't see Moroni named as the angel until the 1830s. And in fact, one of the earliest records that we have that, that names Moroni as the angel is what we now call Doctrine and Covenants 27. Uh, and this was uh, published for the first time in 1835 uh, in the first edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. And there are also, I mean, there are, there are other kind of early documents. There's, a, there's an anti-Mormon document, for example, from the early 1830s that refers to uh, Moroni uh, with the gold plates. And, and then, you know, throughout the 1830s, Joseph and Oliver Cowdery, they, they would refer to the angel, again, either as the messenger or they would call him Moroni. And so we have, we have some evidence for that. The issue or the problem arises uh, because of Joseph's 1838 uh, history, which is uh, the history that we know today as Joseph Smith history or the manuscript history of the church. This is what you, you see in the Pearl of Great Price. And so the earliest document that we have, the earliest manuscript that we have of that history in the portion that uh, is talking about the visit of the angel Moroni, rather than saying Moroni, uh, it says Nephi. And so what's interesting about this is that this is a, a draft, probably either a, a second or, or third draft of the history. I'm not quite clear there. But, but the idea is that uh, it was prepared by Joseph's clerk, James Mulholland, who was just one of the clerks that Joseph worked with as he was preparing this history. And the sense is, is that, that Mulholland was basically working with various histories that Joseph had prepared. And he's, kind of, he's, he's just kind of putting everything it's together. It's not like Joseph sitting there with him telling him what to write. Like he, like you said, he's sort of got different records he's working yeah, with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we don't, we don't quite know. I mean, we get the sense that, that Joseph has worked in some ways uh, on this history, uh, you know, earlier drafts of the history, but Mulholland is just kind of cleaning things up and, and kind of working through it. And, and so anyway, he, rather than writing Moroni, he wrote Nephi. And then subsequently, uh, you know, it went through a few more drafts and nobody caught the error. And it was published in, in uh, April of 1842 in the Times and Seasons, which was the the church's newspaper in Nauvoo. And then afterwards, and then Joseph dies two years later, never corrects it. Afterwards, you know, other histories of the church, uh, including what's eventually published in the Pearl of Great Price, uh, uses Nephi rather than Moroni, uh, just because, you know, there was some confusion about this. And later church historians were looking around and they noticed that there was a discrepancy in the record, that they had these earlier records that Joseph, you know, Joseph and Oliver are referring to the angel as Moroni. Here, this record says Nephi. There's also the September of 1842 letter that Joseph wrote to the saints in Nauvoo. Uh, this is one that's now DNC 128. This is the, the, the famous, you know, what do we hear? Glad tidings from Camora. And in that, in that letter, Joseph again refers to the angel as Moroni. So church historians were confused. And so they, they kind of researched it. Uh, Joseph F. Smith and, 
and uh, Orson Pratt, uh, George A. Smith, these, these were apostles at the time who worked closely with the, the history department. They did the research and they found out that it was probably a clerical error. They made a note of it and uh, they brought it to John Taylor and said, can we get this fixed? And they got it fixed. And so that's why today we, we see Moroni in the account. But, you know, still some people like to, to point it out as, as evidence of Joseph being, um, being inconsistent. And, and that, that just doesn't seem to be the case. Um, and we don't have any, any strong evidence that suggests that Joseph ever referred to the, the angel as Nephi. That's actually what I love, this topic that's uh, associated with this chapter that we're discussing today is there is a topic, it's really clear, we've cited all the sources, and, and if someone wants to know more about this or other um, you know, controversies or lesser-known facts of our history, that's what Saints is yeah, all about. Take a look. Thank, you, uh, thank you, Scott. Thank you, Sarah, for joining with us today. Um, thank you out there for listening. To learn more about Saints, you can always go to saints.lds.org to see the latest chapters, topics, and videos. And, of course, you can visit the Mormon channel to subscribe to this and other podcasts. Thank you for listening. I'm Ben Godfrey. Thanks for joining us today for Saints. And don't forget to read more of this historical narrative on lds.org or on your Gospel Library app. Join us again for our next episode, where we'll once again discover fascinating insights of church history found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the Latter Days. See you next time.